0: Or they tryna play with your crying or something They wanna see you back off of your calling Yet yeah. they tryna mess with your sign or something For lack of a vision and people could perish Commit to the climb even when it hurts Only two things in life you can control It's how you spend time and how hard you work So hard work got first, yeah Hard work got first, yeah Hard work got first, yeah To
1: the day I'm in the dirt, yeah Jesus Christ is Lord, yeah I know who I serve, yeah When my life was hard, yeah all my prayers were heard, yeah, hard work got first, hard work got first, yeah, hard work got first, yeah, sit yeah. so down
0: in the dirt, yeah, Jesus Christ is lost, yeah, I know who I serve, yeah, All my life was hard, yeah. oh, even always my prayers were hurt. yeah, she said, Z, you worked too
1: much since I
0: was a kid, I knew I was the
1: one. Welcome to the Truth of Faith podcast, I'm your host Cliff Steven, if you don't know me, I'm a Christian, I'm a father, I was born and raised in South Boston, Massachusetts, in the Old Colony Projects. And I just want to welcome all our Truth to Faith 5%ers and any new listeners, thank you for joining us. We got a great guest today. I've been looking forward to talking to this person. Um, When I heard him on another podcast, it just blew my mind. Um, He's an author. He has a YouTube channel, Paul Stubbs. Welcome, Paul. How are you doing tonight?
0: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk to you, man, because this topic that you've blown open um, and you've put in so much time and effort to really break it down, I think it's one of the most important topics of our time, personally. Um, And when I was a kid growing up in Boston, there was actually a white van with people dressed as clowns trying to kidnap kids. And, you know, all our parents told us, because we were all the poor kids, like, listen, there's a van. They're trying to snatch kids. they telling them they got candy and puppies and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, when I heard you speak on this topic of, you know, how clowns came from Fallen Angels, the look, I mean, it, it gave me chills, you know, because of that fear I had as a child of the killer clowns.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. That story you're talking about there is it Massachusetts? I believe it was mainly mainly happening in about 1983. I think it was around that time period. Yeah, it
1: it yeah, that was like the beginning. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there
0: was um, there was people. Absolutely, I remember um. Someone, uh, mark from a different podcast, um, explained this to me. He had a, a a segment from a book where someone was documenting that entire event, and it wasn't just isolated to um to Boston. Funnily enough, it actually spread miles across America. A similar phenomenon of people in vans trying to lure children into the into the back of these vans, dressed as clowns, and people tried to chalk that up to oh well you know stephen king's it was just coming out and it was all a publicity stunt and people were were just doing it because of stephen king's it but then what people don't realize is that book didn't even get published till about four years later so it had nothing to do with that whatsoever um and i have my own theories on what was actually going on there to be honest which maybe we can get into (laughs) later um but that was definitely an interesting case and it certainly echoed what happened in uh, 2016 as well with the creepy clown sightings as well, which is kind of a rehash of the same events.
1: Absolutely. And this, this, my podcast is kind of, I touch on everything. I I'm, you know, I'm no scholar. I got a GED, you know, I, I, w- I wasn't a great student. I had a really tough up, uh, upbringing. I really couldn't focus in class and stuff. So, you know, I, I I'm not, ch- I, I just do this to hopefully get some information out there to bring people to the truth that we are in a spiritual battle constantly and there is one way to, to salvation and that's Jesus Christ. And I love your story. It's very similar to mine. Um, how, you know, you were an atheist and, you know, you were out clubbing and partying and you had that void in your you know, soul or in your heart. And eventually you got to Jesus. So could you talk a little bit about that and what that journey was like?
0: Absolutely. Uh, yes, yeah, so you know I grew up in a a non-religious household. Um my grandma was a Catholic and it wasn't it wasn't really something um my father um her son continued or really thought much about or anything. Um a very, a very secular upbringing. Just religion wasn't even a thought. You know, it wasn't like we were anti-religious necessarily. It just literally wasn't a part of our lives. So I wasn't raised in a church. I did go to a, a Catholic church a couple of times with my grandma growing up and um the first time, I just thought it was a boring experience. The second time, an old lady died in front of me. So that kind of put me a sour taste in my mouth for a long time. Uh, she sadly fainted and hit her head on the wooden handle of the pew and uh, basically bled to death then and there. So it wasn't a good scene for a, a seven-year-old to be witnessing, you know, at that time. And um, I suppose from, from that, that was probably one of the major events of my life. Not the only one, but uh, I kind of grew up, kind of against religion in a way you know i didn't see the point of it i thought it was stupid i thought it was just for idiots who were scared of death you know i thought it was just for yeah. it wasn't for me let's put it that way you know and i i was uh i was the annoying child in high school who was bullying the religious education teacher you know and and asking them questions about all the the horrible things that were in the bible you know and what kind of cruel god would do these things you know and and God bless her now looking back. She was a Christian, you know. And it was well known she was a Christian. And she was so patient with me. She had the patience of a saint. Now I look back at it in hindsight, you know. And uh, uh, maybe, that, maybe that was all working for God at the end because... I look back and I'm, I'm amazed at how patient she actually was, you know, and it's kind of, it's, I suppose it was a great role model. But now thinking about it, but uh, this is the thing for all the time. I was writing essays about how awful religion was. I was the one in class getting really high marks because I actually understood religion. you know. And, and uh, this is the thing. She, she never discriminated against me, despite the fact I disagreed with the, the her idea of God, you know, um, but anyway, that being said, that, that was me as an angsty, you very young child, teenager, you know, um, and I I grew up kind of getting into smoking cannabis mainly because it was just everywhere where I grew up in a relatively working class neighborhood, you know, in, in the north of England. Um, Smoking cigarettes by the age of 13, going out drinking with your mates, you know, in parks in the middle of the night uh, up until the age of 16, smoking weed by 16, you know, and it was a pretty cliched life. But um, we also got into like things like um, legal highs, methadone. Things like that. I think it was methadrone, actually. It's not quite the same as methadone, which I think is a, a heroin substitute. This was more like an MDMA substitute. And, you know, I, it, was a, it was a... That was my life growing up. I was pretty carefree, atheistic, hedonistic uh, through and through. And I kind of leaned more heavily into it as I got older, into my late teens. And I went to college and then university. You know, I was still smoking weed every day. Um, And I was kind of just leading into promiscuity, hedonism, all that type of thing. And that was my life. And I ended up leaning leaning into psychedelics as I got into more of my adulthood around 18, 19, when I got to university. And I really wanted to explore consciousness. You know, I was really into the Tao and Eastern mysticisms and all these type of things. And um, I wouldn't say I was much of a hippie. I was never, I'd never been the hippie type. Um, But I was certainly a curious, you know, I've always had a scientific logistical type of mind. I was very much the rational science can have an answer for everything type of guy, as well as being a bit of an artist and a creative thinker as well. So I was always looking for, I was I was always looking for answers, but I never thought the answers would be in any organized religion, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, so yeah, growing up further into university, you know, I started getting heavily into taking acid every day, microdosing, uh, got my hand on mushrooms. I was taking 2CB, which is an acid substitute as well. Um, and then I got my hands on some uh, dimethyltryptamine, DMT, the big one, you know. Um, and I'd, I'd listen to Joe Rogan, Terence McKenna, Alan Watts, all these people, you know, religiously, in a sense, looking for for some kind of connection to something bigger than myself. Because for as much as, you know, as fun as I had taking all these drugs, partying, having meaningless sex and all these type of things. Um, and I know I know this sounds pretty stupid to a lot of people, like, like, oh, oh, you're complaining about having loads of sex, poor you, you know what I mean? But it's not like that. It, it, it was empty. It was, it was shallow. And it actually, the detrimental spiritual effects of living life are far greater than I think people understand or realize. um I felt like I didn't know, I had no identity. I didn't know who I was. um And it, it felt like a piece of my soul was being taken away from me, you know, with each, with each new partner and, and how, and the deeper I went into taking more harder and harder drugs. Um, you know, it got to the point of going out every weekend, taking amphetamines as well, all sorts of things, you know, it, it was, it got pretty bad at university to be honest. And I was at the lowest, of the, low, the lowest possible point thinking I was getting more and more enlightened, you know, the irony of it all really. Um, when really I was getting further and further away from God, um, but still seeking, I was always seeking, you know, I want, I wanted to know, and see that there was more, and in a way, the psychedelics did show me that there is more to what I can just perceive with my eyes. I did understand then that there was a spiritual realm quite clearly there. And um, around 2012, you know, I, I also fell into the conspiracy world at the same time. Um, and my art—I was doing an art degree in Lincoln um, at the time, a fine art degree—and all my work started to become about conspiracy theories and mainly from the New Age um, sacred geometry um consciousness angle you know that's that's what i fell into initially because that was the world i was in and a lot of my early conspiracy research you know waking up and discovering all the paradigm shifting topics was kind of the motions i had to go through for the first few years it it really did come from that new age angle initially but the answers were never really that satisfying because it was always trying to tell me that i was god you know i was god experiencing reality um we're all God, and we are, God has decided to live every existence possible because He was bored, and He lives it through us, you know. And we all just need to remember that we're just one consciousness. All that kind of all that nonsense, you know, is what I was kind of leaning into, and um, it, it got to, it got to a point though where I started to become a bit a, a bit jaded with with the answers that the New Age perspective was giving me when looking for the truth with things. Uh, so you know, I, I went through the same motions most people go through about the banking corruptions you know the medical corruptions the the media corruptions how everyone's satanic all you know the, the 13 royal illuminati bloodlines and how it, i went through it all you know one thing after the other um and but it was mainly the 2012 end of the world mind calendar event that sparked my imagination to go into this but uh it got to a point well, where I kept, I kept th- hearing it. Th- can I
1: just jump in real quick? Sorry. The, of course you can. Yeah. I, that's where I can relate to you with. That's that's where I got my start was the 2012 Mayan calendar because I, I didn't know nothing about this stuff. And that's when around that time, 2012, I started having these weird feelings of like dread and like something's off. And, you know, I found that conspiracy, the 2012 Mayan calendar. and And that's what I, you know, I got into conspiracy that same way. And, you know, went down the mm. same rabbit holes, the banking and stuff. But so I can relate yeah. to that a lot yeah, as yeah. well.
0: It sucked a lot of people in because there's nothing more terrifying than thinking the world's going to end, you know, and uh, that can really jolt your uh, your survival instincts kicking in. And then from there, you can't really go back once you start having that kind of fear. You know? And, it, it, and uh, that was obviously nothing happened. The day came and went. It was never that big of a deal to begin with. Um, it was more of a symbolic passing of an age. In the end, you know, if you want to go into that at all. But um, all it takes to get into conspiracy is one topic, and that can be anything, you know. And that just happened to be my jumping off point. Uh, that led me to discover everything else. And uh, it's it's great that you can you can relate to that particular one. But for a lot of people, you know, it's it was 9/11. That was a big one for a lot of people. Um, and then obviously there was um the cough not that not that long ago which caused a lot of problems and caused a lot of people to start waking up to the corruption around them that's more a more recent jumping off point and um, i think a lot of political stuff brings people in as well the left-right paradigm and the wars between that obviously in politics is a big jumping off point for many people too especially elections in particular um, and i think the music industry and how overtly satanic is another big one um, the flat, yeah, the flat earth was a big topic that roped a lot of people in. And there's, there's, everyone has their own unique jumping off um, singularity event, shall we say, that starts the whole process off in their mind into conspiracy. And that, yeah, that was mine, you know, and it was a scary time. But like I said, it's all through my research in the early days, I kept bumping into the conspiracy angle from the Christian perspective. And I didn't want to take it seriously at first. I always ignored it and put it to the back of my mind, you know, because I I didn't, I I just didn't consider it as important. I thought it was silly, you know, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to humor it. But no matter what I did, no matter what facet I went down in my research, no matter which rabbit hole I went, I went down. At the end of it was always Jesus. It was always about whatever, what he did. It was always about what he did and what happened with that. And the only reason we have a conspiracy is because people are trying to hide it. And cover it up and make sure we don't pay attention to it, you know. And I had a lot of spiritual experiences which I couldn't explain, you know, which were nudging me closer and closer to accepting Jesus. In hindsight, um, spiritual attacks from demonic entities, you know, because gateways had been opened up, unfortunately, due to the heavy amount of tr- drugs I had been doing and then the sinful life I was kind of leading, you know. Um, and you know I was having sleep paralysis and nightmares. Um. And visions of of psychedelic realms with demons and all sorts of things, and and it it was it was getting scary. So I kind of I was immersing myself more and more in the Christian perspective because I understood they could offer me a solution to this demonic problem, <laughs> you know, these demonic Amen. attacks in a sense. Um, and I listened to a lot of Derek Prince. Um, he he was a and Rabbi Zachariah actually, funnily enough, I think passed away. Um, and I'm not saying these people are necessarily. The pinnacle of christian theology but they were the people you know in the early days i was listening to who were helping me just understand the basic gospel a bit more and i listened to all of c.s lewis as well he came up with a lot of um you know apologetics towards christianity and you know i'm not saying i again i wouldn't 100% agree with these people's theology today necessarily you know but it's um as far as trying try, try
1: It's what you needed to hear at the time. And that and that's really what my podcast is about is, you know, truth to faith, because like you said, that's what I when I went down these rabbit holes, I always came back to Jesus, like you said. Yeah. And I fell away from Christianity for a while. I got stuck into the um, the ancient aliens and I started believing Mm -hmm. that and Inky, and all that stuff. And I fell away from God for two years. And then I came to flat earth. And when I realized the earth was flat, um, I, mm-hmm. I had an experience where I was in the presence of God. I know I was. It was, you know, one of the best experiences of my life other than having my daughter. Um, but the love I felt at that moment, you know, I can't even put it in words. It, it, it's the way I love my daughter, but times a thousand. And I've yeah. seen this light and it encompassed me, but I, I wasn't like blinded it um It was just a beautiful experience, and after having that, you know, that was it. Like there was no more for me. There was no more backsliding for me. I couldn't backslide no more because I knew the truth now. Like one hundred percent, I had no more doubt. I know there's a God. I know Jesus is real. So I, I start backsliding. I, I take Christianity more serious. Now I'm not the perfect Christian. You know, I'm a sinner. I was, you know, I had a similar life. You know addiction and all that. And I got those attacks too. Like when I was in active addiction, I would have these dreams where a beautiful woman would come to me and she would want to sleep with me. And of course I would fall for it. And right when we were in the middle of it, her eyes would go black and I her face would turn into a demon. And my ex-wife would have to wake me up. Cause I'd be screaming, touching my, like, it was crazy. And luckily I got away from all that, but so I can relate to those demon attacks as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, it comes in many forms. Mine were mainly in, uh, being absolutely murdered in my dreams. It was, it was quite heavy stuff, you know, um, it wasn't sexual in nature. Mine were, were a lot more terrifying, chasing, uh, at war constantly type of dreams, paralyzed dreams being, being, it's like they were trying to amp the fear up in me you know it's like that was the intended I think they were trying to feed off me in that respect and um it, it was scary it was scary times and I'll get, and I'll elaborate a bit more on, on one of the major ones that saved me the most in the end it, you know Jesus turns all things for good in the end and I, th- I think I can maybe explain that but as I was saying you know I had I had these early Christian preachers and teachers and and again I know some of these people even Rabbi, Rabbi Zachariah himself you know it became all about the money for these people obviously in the end and um, there's a lot to be said for the charismatic movement that Derek Prince was involved with as well and all these type of things and obviously C.S. Lewis people often accuse him of being a part of the occult in many ways with his associations with uh Tolkien and but this is the thing irregardless of all those things it it didn't matter for me in that early stage in my life when I wasn't a Christian it was just hearing people and their their perspectives on Christ which was opening me opened me up to the idea you know and that's what mattered for me at that moment um and, and anyway you know. It, it, it got to a point in my life, fast forwarding here, where I was burnt out. I had nothing left to give emotionally. I was on the brink of depression and suicide to the point where I had no direction. My degree was about to end. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know who I was or what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I was pure nihilistic, hedonistic, just burnt out and terrified because of all the conspiracy stuff as well and about the world just being an absolute corrupt hellhole to live in. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing, you know um and i was young i was only about 22 maybe 23 coming you know i've just finished like i said 3 years in lincoln doing all these crazy things getting my art degree and i basically i was um i was at a party um, for my brother-in-law now um obviously he was marrying my sister so i was at his uh, his stag do um which is a bachelor party i think you call it in america and um i was burnt out in the hotel room i just ran myself a bath and I hadn't had a bath since I was like 15 because I'd only ever lived in a place with a shower cubicle. Uh, and so I ran this bath, you know, and I was basically at my lowest point. And, and like I said, I was swimming in this Christian angle in my mind because it wasn't just these preachers. There was also Christian conspiracy theorists really laying out heavy that the times we were living in and what this is really all about. And I always has this niggling thing in the back of my mind. It's like if these people worship Lucifer, and believe in the devil, then the God must be real too. You know, Amen. Jesus must be real too. And I couldn't get up past that fact, and it, and I'd gone down the zeitgeist route, like you, you know, and believe Jesus was just a metaphor for the sun and all this nonsense, you know. But then i was seeing the counter evidence, which proved unequivocally that that's absolute nonsense, and basic just outright lies, <laughs> just made up, you know. Um, you can do, and you can do that kind of trickery with anything. You know, sim, sim, uh, heavily symbolically, metaphorically, break down something to be a symbol rather than reality. If you want to, you can pull in any string to makes make a real thing into nothing but a metaphor, and that's what that uh, thing was basically doing. And uh, and you know, so I, but I got to the point where it's like, okay, so God, if you, if you are real, help me. I I don't know what I'm doing, and I sincerely broke down, and just said, help me, please. I'm giving it to you, you know, show me what's really going on. Um, And then I, I took it at that and I led down in the bath and I submerged myself under the water and then bang, I had this huge powerful feeling rushed through my entire body right in the chest. Like just, out, just, just, electricity you know i couldn't explain it i shot up instantly i thought i was having a power uh, panic attack i ran to the window dripping wet like breathing heavily looking in the window but i realized it's not a pain this isn't fear i was feeling it was power it was something else you know i couldn't explain it Mm -hmm. and it quickly it quickly passed and i was like what what was that (laughs) i did i I didn't know what to make of it but from that day on uh, i think it was march 14th uh, 2014 Praise everything Lord. everything changed. Um, You know, it took a while, but two years later, I called Turkey Quick Cannabis, and I've not touched it ever since. I've been sober since, you know, so that's eight years sober Congrats. on that. um, I have, I've had zero desire to explore any psychedelic realm anymore or take any amphetamines or class A's or anything like that. I haven't touched it since. I quit smoking cigarettes immediately from that day as well, pretty much afterwards and switched to an electric cigarette. And it's taken a while, but um, at the beginning of 2023, I quit nicotine fully. Um, And it nice. took a long time to break down your know, 10 years worth of smoking and addiction, but uh, it took another eight years to get off it fully. But I got off it, you know, and um, now I'm sober. I don't drink anymore. I don't desire to do these things anymore. My lusts have changed and gone and been subdued. It's like I've become a whole, I was born again. It's the, only, it's the only way to describe it. It was a truly supernatural experience for me. Um, My desires changed. Everything changed. My personality changed. I didn't want to sin anymore. And when I did, I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit because it, it was in me, you know, and I didn't want to have that cigarette anymore. I had no desires to kill myself slowly anymore. Um, and I just buried my head in the word and studies of this conspiracy culture, you know, and I started the YouTube channel and it took a long time to deprogram a lot of the crap I'd, I had tried to understand the world through the lenses of the new age perspective and replace it with the Christian perspective. But, you know, as the years have gone by, I've got stronger and stronger in biblical history and, and the biblical understanding to explain this phenomena of the control and the conspiracy around us. And that's what my channel has become over the years, you know? And yeah. um, and that's basically my my story in a nutshell, my testimony. And today, you know, my life has done a one eighty. I was depressed, lonely, no direction. Um, you know, a drug addict, basically, and and completely lost in my own narcissistic self and mind, and believing I was a god. You know, and today I have a beautiful wife, a loving son, uh, my own home. I'm self employed with an amazing, you know, everything's just my life is perfect now compared to what it was then you know and and it will change from that day um, that's
1: that's a beautiful testimony and i'm i'm so happy you're in a better place and that really is the beauty of jesus like he he changes your life like when you think there is no other options and that this is your life and this is how it's going to be but it's not you know if you just put your faith in him honestly he mm-hmm. he can do miracles he does miracles and your testimony is a beautiful story and it's, you know, it's, it's people need to listen. And if you're struggling, you can change too. So when did you, when did you dive into this fallen angel, um, clown thing? Like, did that start shortly after?
0: Yeah, it was all around the similar time after I got saved really. So like I said I got saved in 2014. And then that's, you know, if I thought it was being spiritually attacked before it got a much heavier Once I was filled with the Holy Spirit and got saved by that point, prior to that, they were subtly messing with me. You know, I didn't really know they existed or they were there kind of, but they were, they were coming at me in my dreams mainly, you know, but once I was saved, they were openly manifesting in open eye daylight type of situation. You know, the, 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 the the demons, which had probably been attached to me for years, enjoying every lust i was satisfying to gratify their needs through my body rather than myself you know i realized a lot of what i was doing was probably for them not me or the drugs i was taking or the life i was leading and i think once i had you know given myself over to christ i don't think they were happy that they were losing a vessel that they were gaining so much pleasure from you know through my senses they were living vicariously and that's what demons do um, and I learned a lot of that, you know, from Derek Prince, actually, how demons operated, but also from my own experiences and then studying, um, studying biblical history and where demons come from. I, I, I um, learned a lot from Gary Wayne, you know, whose book was released around the same time, around a similar time, to be honest. And I, I, I was learning about the history of the Nephilim and the origins around these times as well. And I was basically getting to know my enemy. You know, and, and that's when they started to really come at me in full force. And I was, I have a few spiritual stories, which kind of led me to the clown thing, which kind of explain this. Um, But I, I had, a I had a moment, you know, where I was just sat in my living room with my dog next to me. And suddenly the room began to go black from the corners and I went paralyzed and it felt like I was dying. Like my brain was shutting down. It's the only way to explain it. Um, and I basically just said jesus help me it's all i could do and then instantly i was back in the room and everything was fine again but i felt like that was literally them coming for me um to try and literally just just kill me in that moment and jesus saved me that day i believe you know in his authority they fled basically um but for, so nothing of my own did that <laughs> that was him that was all him you know um and that really got me clued into that i'm in the middle of a spiritual war this there's a war here going on and, we, and they're happy for you to not know they exist. But as soon as they, you realize they exist, they're coming for you. You know, it's as simple as that. You're you're useless to them now. They're going to get rid of you, you know. And I randomly had a flashback, I thought, at the time of, a DM, of the DMT realm, which I become pretty familiar with, you know. So when I suddenly randomly in the middle of the day for no reason was flooded and back into perceiving that realm, I knew exactly where it was. And I was like, why am I in the DMT realm? And I looked up and I realized I was stood in front of a giant and it was an enormous black and white fractal patterned jester with wide purple lips, huge glowing eyes. And this this skull shaped like spider's legs. It wasn't wearing a jester's hat. It was shaped like one, but its skull was simply shaped like that. It was a terrifying thing to behold, you know, and he was kind of just grinning there. And I was back and I was, I didn't know what to make of that. You know, I was like, what the hell was that? <laughs> that was weird, you know, and but I'm back all of a sudden. And, um, you know, I was doing my research into spirit realm things and I had done my research prior and I understood there was these things called uh, uh, DMT jesters. I heard. Joe Rogan talking about this concept and I realized have I just seen a DMT jester? is that what that is you know and I I'd, I'd listened to a lot of Terence McKenna's trip reports talking about um you know machine elves and these these entities that are in this spirit realm you go to when you take these powerful psychedelics so it's kind of I think that was my first encounter with one of them in hindsight you know and I had that experience under my belt I had another dream where the um, an entity called the hatman came after me And he was wearing a long purple pimp trench coat type thing with a cane with multicolored ribbons flying behind him like a Morris dancer or a mummer of some kind, you know, with this long brimmed fedora hat with his eyes glowing like fire, you know, and this horrible radiating black smoke coming from beneath his his arms and his eyes like a shadow entity with this pimp outfit on basically but you could consider something like a hat man like a clownish entity you know and from my perspective all these bright colors were associated with the things he was wearing and he chased me in a dream um in which involved dead relatives and a tea party and i drank the tea and then he came for me it was a really trippy ordeal um if you people want to actually i have documented it thoroughly with images and sounds and everything on my channel called the hat man a Demonic Encounter, if you want to go and see that um but that happened as well. And, and then suddenly in 2016, there was the, the, the clown sightings began to happen on TV and people were standing on street corners, looking menacing, just scaring people. And I've realized this phenomena that every single news station everywhere was reporting it, even in England, you know, it was odd. It was, it seemed to be a, a predominantly Western hemisphere problem, but it was happening everywhere. And, it wasn't the clown sightings, which were bizarre to me. It was that the media was focusing on it in such a hyper way. And the media doesn't put the camera on anything unless it wants you to see it. Nothing gets put on that box in the corner of the room Absolutely. unless it's it's there for a purpose. Now, everything's a symbol to these people. And I knew enough by this point. I've been in the conspiracy world for a good five years to know how, how the occult works. You know, I wrote my thesis on occult symbolism. I understood the occult. You know, I've been swimming in knowledge in this realm and I knew okay, so if the clown is everywhere on the news, the clown is a symbol for something. I knew that immediately. Mm. My only job now was to figure out, okay, what does it symbolize? What's the point? What does it mean? And um, I, I did a cursory search off the back of this event into Google, and I, I knew, okay, DMT jesters, jesters are similar to clowns in a way. They're part of the same, like, cousins, aren't they, in a way? They're kind of like kin of some kind. Um... D- d- demonic clowns the, the word demon and clown was always together Around this demonic evil clown sightings Phenomena I couldn't help but notice in the media There was a lot of demon clown symbolism everywhere And and I thought okay so if demons Are the disembodied spirits of Nephilim Which are the offspring Of fallen angels and humans yeah. And People that are equating clowns With demons then let's type In Nephilim clown. Let's just see what comes up, you know, and nothing really came up. Um, I managed to scour the internet and find one video from a channel called The Epic Conspiracy. Now, this channel has about 2,000 subscribers, even even to this day, I think, um, you know, seven years after the fact. But the, he, he made this mockumentary video where he was pretending to be like a history channel host, and he was taking the piss out of conspiracy theorists. He was mocking us. He wasn't a conspiracy theorist. He was mocking conspiracies in general. Yeah. And he was doing this over-exaggerated voice, you know, kind of um, talking about the Nephilim. And he says, the Nephilim had white skin and red hair. There's only one explanation for what these beings truly are. They were interdimensional killer clowns from out of space, you know. And yeah. he was mocking, he was mocking it, the whole concept. But as soon as he said that, I was like, hang on. There's more here than he he even he knows, you know, and I began my research. I began looking into it. I began making the comparisons and looking at the history of clowns. And then, and then one thing led to another, and it it just started to snowball and spiral into a uh, so far a a sixty thousand word thesis, half a book written on the subject matter. And what do you know? To summarise it very quickly in an elevator pitch, I've discovered that what we call a clown in the West is a perfectly sculpted crafted symbol to represent the nephilim that's exactly what it is and it's done by design as well it's all historically documented um a clown is not something fun for the kids but it's actually a tool a costume worn by occultists for the specific purpose of channeling demons and it's the same practice done by uh, ancestor spirit cult worship um cultures all around the earth who also dress in a similar way for the purpose of being possessed by what they call ancestor spirits, which are the Nephilim. And that's it.
1: Wow. That's, that's amazing. And didn't, didn't they like, so they kind of look like clowns, but didn't they have like scales as well? Didn't they kind of look reptilian? Is that.
0: Yeah. So let's get, let's get into explaining why this is the case. So, I've again, I've written about this extensively. I've made videos showcasing this, but there's only so much we can say today. I know our time's limited. We only have about 50 minutes left, don't we? Because you have to get going. So, um, I advise anybody who wants the deeper details for this to go to my channel. I have a 45 episode series dedicated to this, hours and hours and hours of podcast visits breaking down details and showcasing this. If you want images to back up everything, I'm saying it's all there on my channel. And again, I'm writing the book on this, but, um, Let's give a brief history of biblical history. I'm going to try and be quick about this because there's a lot to say, you know. Um, But yes, there was this documented thing, um, mainly described in the book of Enoch from a biblical perspective, but you can find similar stories in ancient cultures all over the earth of beings coming down from heaven and mixing themselves with humanity. Okay. And the offspring of this, the result was giants. Now, the Bible explains that these beings that came down um, were of a serpentine nature seraphim angels of fiery flying serpents as described by what seraph actually means when you break it down um i do believe the dragons of old um the dragon cultures which are spread out all throughout the earth um the rainbow um serpents of australia for example the dragons of um you know of um all the asian continents of japan of china of thailand um the the serpentine Naga gods and and serpent gods um of India, for example, they the rife with serpent symbolism. Um, and wherever you see serpents, Quetzalcoatl, for example, the feathered serpents of America, all of these ancient serpent gods were the fallen angels. They were the seraphim angels. They were the watcher class angels who were supposed to look after us, but instead were convinced and gave into the lusts and mated with us instead. Primarily the Daughters of Cain is where my research has taken me on this. But this union, which never should have happened, created offspring that never should have existed. And these offspring were a human hybrid class that had mixed with fiery flying serpents. So you can only imagine what that would have actually looked like. Because this is the thing, everywhere you see people discussing the Nephilim in the conspiracy world, they always show pictures of really, really hench, brown-haired, tanned, Conan the Barbarian, bare-chested-looking humans, you know, that were just really, really, really big. I don't think they looked human at all. I think they would have been a serpentine-human hybrid that would have been psychedelic to behold, incredibly colorful and crazy, perhaps with plumed feathers involved as well, incredibly wide serpentine jaws by natures of the serpentine dragon parents. Um, I think they would have had elongated skulls, elongated features, noses, sharp, angular, high cheekbone features, enormous, glowing, bulbous serpentine um, eyes with slits. I think they would have had long appendages, long, thin arms, and I think they would have been insane and terrifying to behold they would have had bright luminous red hair as depicted by all the cultures around the earth as well when they're describing things like the rakshasa demons for example of uh, india or the um, the gorgon um, human hybrid serpent hybrid uh, demons of greece Um you look at all the masks of the dragon hybrid demon creatures all across the asian continents and they all have these big wide Laughing serpentine book two sharp grins with wild bulging eyeballs and um, they look like clowns. <laughs> you know, and th- that's that's basically a summary of of where we get the, the image of a clown from. So we can know this if we look at cultures all around the earth. Because predominantly what my work actually is is an anthropological study of ancestor spirit cultures on every continent. Now every every continent has their own version of this. Okay, where they dress like the thing to channel the thing. And I don't believe wearing clothes is a simple thing. I think what you dress like is very important. I think if when you dress like something and put on a mask, for example, like they do in these cultures, they know why they're doing it. They're trying to create a stronger channel. They're trying to mimic something in the spirit realm in order to allow it in. And I think when you try and dress like something in the spirit realm, you are opening a channel or making it stronger. And they know that that's what they're doing in these cultures because that's the purpose of doing it. They want to be possessed by what they believe are their ancestors. Now, they're not talking about grandma or granddad. They're talking about the builders of their ancient civilizations and cultures. That's what they mean by ancestor. And if you look into the history of it, the original Nephilim, they subdued humanity before the flood. They controlled everything. They became the ancient kings and rulers over mankind just by sheer virtue of them being terrifyingly large, who could stand up against them. And they had their parents, they answered to the fallen angels who were in rebellion against God and had an agenda to corrupt all of humanity at this time, you know, and they were basically the physical foot soldiers for the angelic serpentine parents, you know, and then below them there were human cults dedicated to maintaining this established false order of serpentine gods you know and we still have these secret societies today who still work with them um but yeah rest, rest assured the the ancestors are these nephilim that were once kings and rulers over these cultures and they emulate wow. them they try and dress like them they they elongate their own skulls to try and be like the Nephilim, you know, because they consider it a power symbol, a symbol of beauty, a symbol of power to have an elongated skull. Um, they paint their faces white They add red lipstick and red noses And polka dots all over their bodies They give themselves enormous red feather dresses Or reed feather dresses Or ordain themselves with jewels and gold And psychedelic cut- colours and patterns They do wild dances with straws flailing all over the place because uh, To create an etheric sound vibration frequency aura Around them from the effects They're trying to emulate something They're trying to channel something And the reason they dress like this is because they want to channel the Nephilim because that's what the Nephilim looked like. Now, the clown in the West is a similar emulated copied version. It's our version in the West of what these ancestor spirit cultures do. So if you examine them, you'll find that what they tend to do Um, And this is, like I said, in the ancestors, so we're talking about Africa, um, some parts of India, some parts of the continents of the archipelagos of uh, Indonesia and Bali region and the Indic regions. Um, You can find this high up into the shamans of Siberia, Mongolia and China. You can find this happening in North America, South America. Um, There's tribes all all over the earth that do the exact same thing and dress the exact same way with similar aesthetical details they white up the skin, they red up the lips, they red the nose, they add psychedelic colors and patterns to the body, and they put on some kind of red-haired headdress or wig. Um, wow. I do believe I do believe Freemasons are traveling men, and I think when I can get into the history of this in a bit, maybe I'll pause there and then we can get into the history of how this got introduced into the West exactly. Um, but rest assured, the clown is modeled after these cultures
1: wow is so when these like in america these guys that dress as women and they put all the makeup on and the wigs do you think you know their flag is the rainbow do you think they're trying to emulate that and you know are they possibly being possessed or trying to be possessed
0: (laughs) i can neither confirm or deny that through fear of the algorithm Okay. The, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's not but go yeah,
1: into yeah, that. <laughs> but, All right, but we all can read between uh, the lines. <laughs> let's, all right, yeah. let's move on. Yeah. So, so the you believe the Freemasons are tied into this as well?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, I can explain the full history of how we even got the clown, and it is heavily tied with secret societies. Heavily tied. Um. So right. So let's go back. Let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. Now, first of all, clowns, people would argue historically, have always been around for thousands of years. Sure, you could kind of argue maybe people who make fools of themselves have always been around to entertain others. Yes. But the thing that we call a clown today and that specific design of a clown with the white grease paint, the red nose and the red wig and the, the psychedelic clothes, that is a relatively new creation. Okay, that's... um. There's always been sanios mimics, mimes, and jesters of a kind in every culture. There are some cultures, in fact, such as um, in America, you'll find there's a lot of um, Hopi tribes, for example, who have the jester character, and um, they they have their, they call these things clown societies. Actually, this is what they call them. They're not the only one, but the perhaps the most popular one. Um, Yeah, and they they have their version of a clown, which basically um, acts in a backward way to societal norms. And they're considered actually quite important members of these tribes, almost like a shamanistic um, status to be a clown. And these have always existed, yes. Okay, they've always existed. But these are not the Western version of a clown. This is what the Western version of a clown is based upon, sure. But the Western clown, as we know it, didn't actually exist until about let it the the history is blurry but it's it's around about the turn of the century of the 1800s sort of going out of the 1700s into the 1800s okay that's exactly when the costume of a clown was invented and created as we know it today so let's get into the history of this so circuses had always been a a growing popular concept in maybe the 1750s onwards uh, mainly created by someone called John Ricketts who was a equestrian um horse wrangler. He he was a part of the military and he could ride horses really well. And he used to do horse tricks around a circle at his amphitheatre in, in London. And that was the first circus as we know it in the West. And it was basically a man doing horse tricks. So not the circus we know today. Okay. And from there, um someone called Charles Dibden and Richard Hughes decided to copy that model and they created the first royal circus. That's what they called it, the Royal Circus, and that's the first time the word circus had been used in England, associated with a kind of show of some kind. Prior to that, it was called John Ricketts Amphitheater of Equestrian Something or Other. You know, it wasn't. It was a long-winded name that didn't have the word circus in it. So, it was uh, Charles Dibdin who coined the phrase circus to involve a ring and entertaining people. Okay, and that happened in about the 1780s, 17, yeah, about 1770s, roughly around that time. Now, that was the established show model involving circuses, and Charles Dibdin and Richard Hughes created that. Now, let's let's put that to one side for a minute, just for a minute. Let's go to the theatres of London around this time. Now, Charles Dibdin, the man I just mentioned, was a prolific playwright and songwriter. Okay, he was actually very famous, a very famous person for the time in the in the industry of creativity in London during that time period. He was extremely prominent, and guess what? He was also a member of the Leicestershire Freemason Lodge number two six three four, I think it was. <laughs> and uh, not only was a high ranking Freemason, but he was also a huge media mogul of the day for the theatre of, of London. And he coined the phrase "circus." He invented the circus, and he introduced that concept. Now he. Was always involved in writing plays, sure. Um, he actually ran his own uh, newspaper for a short while called The Devil, um, which opens up with him explaining how he's on the brink of suicide when the devil came to him and it told him to start a newspaper, basically lambasting Christian orthodoxy of the day. So that can tell you a lot about his character from the, from the beginning there. And he even says himself, it was the devil who made me do it. <laughs> Take that for what you will, whether it was satire or he was being serious. That's still there as a documented history. Uh, but after that magazine failed, he became a huge song and playwright. So he did what the devil said and he got rewarded for it. And he got his fame and fortune afterwards, you know. Um, anyway, he had uh, two sons, Thomas Dibdin and Charles Dibdin Jr. So he named one of his sons after himself. So Charles, uh, Thomas Dibdin was quite a popular playwright himself. He actually took control of um, Sadler's Wells Theatre. One of the biggest theatres in London, next to, um, oh God, I'm blanking right now, but there was basically the Royal Theatre, I think it was called in London, and then there was Sadler's Wells Theatre. So Royal Theatre was more for um, rich toffs, you know, high influential people. Sadler's Wells was more for the poor people, for the hook, for the common folk. Um, but they were getting popular doing things called pantomimes. And our pantomime was a three to four hour epic show in which there would be serious drama. And then suddenly there would be this insane show at the end for an hour involving clowns and uh, stock characters from the comedial art movements, just in a wild chase scene of slapstick, insane Looney Tunes antics and comedy. That's where the clown was kind of involved, along with a character called Harley Quinn. Now, these were getting popular in the UK, but they do have kind of an older history that goes back to the 1600s. Now, the Harlequinards, which this pantomime was based on in London, um, it kind of came out of the Dark Ages, as it's described by the standard historical story. Um, After the collapse of Rome and the excesses of Rome, a lot of um, actors banded together and started traveling Europe, putting on this show called the Camille des Arts. And the Camille de was basically people who wore masks of basic stock societal characters like the policeman, the soldier, the rich man, the daughter of the rich man, the servant, just basic characters people could understand and recognize no matter where you were from, you know. And they were put on quick improvised shows in these villages, get a bit of money, move on to the next place. And that went on for a good a couple of hundred years, you know, a few hundred years. And they invented this kind of, thing called a harlequinade where the main character would become harlequin and uh, a lot of comedy arose around this character harlequin and and him trying to steal the daughter of the rich man um columbine um and the rich man was called pantaloon now the rich man had his own servant um, who was called pedrolino and he was the first proto clown Okay, but Pedrolino was just a basic white-garbed, ragged, plain servant. Harlequin was a psychedelic monster-looking jester thing, (laughs) okay? And the history of Harlequin is quite simple. He is modelled after the wild man of Europe, which is basically a demon. A club-wielding, giant, hairy demon. Um, modeled after helikins the french version of this wild man demon Uh, but however the wild man was actually everywhere all over europe no matter where you went whether it was from portugal all the way across to bulgaria crossing the span of all of europe every culture had a wild man myth and story and they all dressed like this hairy beast once a year during the lent period to scare away evil spirits was my, their main attitude. So this Comédie Del Art movement decided, okay, well, let's add this wild man as a stock character into our play, you know, because everyone recognizes the wild man. And that was Harlequin. And Harlequin was the diamond-wearing, black beast, mask-wearing, club-wielding, monster demon character. And he was supposed to be the demon. That's the point of Harlequin. He's a demon. He can change the scene by slapping his stick the slapstick, you know, he had magical powers. He, it's almost as though he could fly. He was constantly tumbling and doing backflips and all sorts of crazy things, you know, and he was being rude with his, with his club, acting like it was a phallus, you know, and doing all sorts of sexual gestures. He was supposed to be a demon character. But when he got to, you know, fast forward a couple of hundred years, his character developed and got a bit boring. He got a bit more into a love a lovesick fool who would chase after the the daughter, the woman, you know, of the rich man. And he, he lost that demonic edge. Uh, and you would find that in Britain, the clown was taking over as the character who had the demonic edge. So Pedrolino was originally what the clown was based on, just a boring servant, you know. Pedrolino... Developed into the British clown and the British clown had a new attitude about him. He was kind of like a drunken loudmouth and uh, very British, you know, um, the French version was kind of like a, a boring sad sack who couldn't get the girl because the girl wanted Harlequin, but didn't want the Pedrolino, you know, and that was Poirot. That was the French version of a clown. And, you know, he, again, he was a boring, weird little creep in France, you know, in the French version of a clown. But the, but, but the, British, the British version was a, a laugh-a-minute riot, you know, of, of just foolery and drunkenness and mishaps and, and mischief. And people preferred him over Harlequin. Harlequin used to be that character, but now the clown was in Britain. So a switch kind of got made in the 1800s. Um, I think people were bored of Harlequin, who, by the way, like I said, modeled after a demon a giant, a Nephilim creature of Europe. You know, that's where Harlequin is modeled after. And let's go back to Charles Dibdin, that prolific Freemason who I told you about, who ran the industry. Well, his son, Charles Dibdin Jr., took over Sadler's Wells Theater in the 1800s, in about 1890, 1799, okay? And he decided, I'm going to change things. All right. So up until this point, the costumes had never changed over hundreds of years. But he decided one day, Clown, the character of Clown, he looks boring. He's dressed in white, boring garbs. He's plain, it's bland, but his character is wild. So I'm gonna dress him like a psychedelic monster demon, basically. And Harlequin got his own uh, upgrade and fashion a, bit, a couple of years later in the royal exchange through another um, person. But he became more of a, a fancy dandy about town and the clown took over as the demon character. And there was a switch in roles. Okay, so Harlequin took a back seat, clown took over and replaced Harlequin as the demon the demon character, and he had a new costume change to match. And this is where the first version of the clown costume appears that we have today. The wild multicolored fractal pattern, red nosed um, multicolored patterns on the cheeks, white grease paint, wild crazy hair clown. That's where he appeared right then and there. And it was the son of a Freemason called Charles Dibden, who was probably a Freemason himself, though. I can't find the records for his son, but you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree you'll find. And, uh, You'll find, you know, he's the one who invented that image of a clown and put it on the stage of theatre in London, the most popular form of entertainment of the age. These are basically the Illuminati controlling the music and entertainment industries, but in the 1800s. It's the same yep. thing. That that was the popular form of entertainment of the day. And what have they done? They've took over and injected their gods, the Nephilim, the demons, as the main characters for people to worship and venerate. Now, let's look at the costume of a clown, this original version, which was worn by an actor called Joseph Grimaldi. If you look into any history of this publicly, you'll find Joseph Grimaldi is given all the credit. The actor, the Patsy, is given all the credit for the clown. He invented the image of a clown we have today. He is the father of clowns, modern clowns. But he had nothing to do with the costume change. He had nothing to do with it. It was these Freemason, this Freemason affiliated family who did it, you know, and took over the industry and made the costume change. Um, Joseph Grimaldi was just a fantastic actor that people loved who wore the costume. Okay. Wow. And anyway, you'll find out that the Dibdins, so Charles Dibdin Sr., was obsessed with India. His brother, his Thomas Dibdin, who it gets complicated. Okay. So Charles Dibdin Sr., had a brother called Thomas Dibdin. But Charles Dibdin Senior also had two children. One of them was called Thomas, and one of them was called Charles. So it makes sense of that. Honestly, I was looking through the historical records and the birth charts. It got so convoluted and complicated that a lot of the, a lot of what Charles Dibdin Senior did and Junior did gets mixed up quite a lot, and you've got to try and tweeze it apart to find out who did what, you know. But anyway, Thomas Dibdin Senior, Charles Dibdin Senior's brother, was a member of the East India Company. He was colonizing India at that time. He was a part of the British Navy colonizing India. So actually Charles did in senior, had been back and forth to to Calcutta in in India quite a few times. And he was even considering moving there permanently. But bad weather stopped his boat from setting off. So he never actually went in the end. And he stayed in Britain making uh, musicals and things like that. But he was going to move to India. Sadly, his brother Thomas died over there colonizing India and he made a song dedicated to his brother which became very famous and was sung by sailors all throughout that time period it was one of the sh- biggest songs ever for that time period he's equated with being responsible for maintaining the morale of the navy during this time with his music you know he was given super accolades for his brother's death and writing that song and you know he he was, he was a big deal charles dibdin you have no you might you might be a nobody today But then he was a huge deal for Britain and music, you know. Anyway, his brother died. You know, he didn't go to India in the end, but he had been to India many times. And lo and behold, you look at images of the first clown costumes worn by Joseph Grimaldi during this costume change, which was made, and it is identical to the Rakshasa demons on the temples within Thailand. Identical costume, identical makeup, They had literally just copy and pasted the demons of India and put it on the stage of Britain into the pantomime. And that's what we call a clown. So not only is Harlequin the first jester clown character of the 1600s, modelled after European demons, European giants, the Europeans' version of Nephilim, the wild man, but his replacement, clown, who was given this costume change is also modeled off of Eastern Indian versions of the same creature they call a the Rakshasa. So there you go. Through and wow. through everything about a clown and its inception is rooted in demonic iconography. Wow. Paul, so that nice was history that, there. And that, it, was, and that sorry, go ahead. Go ahead sorry.
1: No, that was a great breakdown, man. I, I really enjoyed it, man. You, you tied it all together and you, Man, I'm blown away.
0: Yeah, it's it, it's deep. I mean, people don't really know what I'm talking about when I say the Nephilim look like clowns. They, they you hear it at first, you think this guy's got to be, and you're having a laugh, you know. But this is actually this is real history. This is this is not my speculation. Uh, sure, you're not going to find other people connecting these dots necessarily, but it's it's clear when you actually start to just look, and you can find clearly these associations. Anyway, f- from there, you know that that became the industry standard. All clowns began to dress like this from then on. It was a hit, you know what I mean? People loved the costume change. It was nuts. But mainly because Joseph Grimaldi was such an intense actor and so hilarious that it became synonymous with that look from then on, you know. And you'll find this is where clowns began to be introduced into the circuses. Because you'll find in between the horse tricks, which I mentioned earlier, Charles Dibden invented the circus as well, you know, that Charles Dibden Sr. Well, you'll find... Clowns began to incorporate it into the circus show as entertainment in between scene changes. So, once the horse tricks had ended, they would change the scene and the clown would entertain the audience with some silly slapstick moments while the scene was being changed, you know. And that was mainly British circus, circusry, you know, from then on. That's what circuses were like in Britain uh, horse tricks smattered with a few clown tricks in between. And you'll find it, it slowly began to develop and grow. And um, a lot of these people who had their own circuses modeled after this t- fashion moved to America because obviously there was expansion going on in America at the time, moving west, you know what I mean? Um, and yeah. these traveling circuses bega- began to become the norm in America. And I've got all the names and dates documented. It's very dry when you actually get into the history. So I'm not going to get boy with the details, but I, I have written about it and it will be in the book. But, uh you'll find they had to adapt to a moving population. So they began to have traveling circuses and you'll find again, this version of a clown came over and the people running these things weren't like theater owners or well-established family members or or people of high society. You'll find it was businessmen and con men and grifters who were taking over these industries, businessmen, you know, who were out to make some money and they, they created, basically, the Three Ring Circus. You'll find it's someone called P.T. Barnum, who was really the one who spearheaded this in the early eighteen in the 1800s onwards, up until about 1890, you know. Uh, I think he died in about 1880, 1890, I'm not sure. Um, but he he spearheaded the circus to be what it is today. Lo and behold, he's a member of the Odd Fellows. Uh, the Odd Fellows is a Freemasonic offshoot who... The, the members of that society are all presidents senators um and entertainers all mixed together into one odd group and um, the highest members of society become members of the order of the odd fellows even albert pike himself the man who wrote morals on dogma who was a high level 33 degree freemason was a member of the order of the odd fellows anyway pt barnum was also a member and he's the one who invented the freak show which became a part of these traveling circuses now um P.T. Barnum, Phineas Taylor Barnum joined with uh, with Bailey and Sons and combined the circuses to become P.T. Barnum and Bailey's Combined Circus Spectacular you know, which involved the menagerie um, animals of uh, Bailey mixed with the freak show of Barnum and they created this insane circus. Now, he actually created the three ring circus. He decided, I want it bigger, I want it better and he added two extra rings. Now, funnily enough, three interlocking rings is the symbol and logo for the order of the odd fellows so wow. he incorporated his own freemasonic symbolism into this show um now pt barnum was sorry uh, yeah pt barnum was actually a, a horrible man he was he was a cruel human being um he was obsessed with fame and money anything for fame power and money is what he would do basically he abused a lot of people he did some very questionable things to get where he was but he basically created a museum which was full of um curiosities and oddities of the day you know come and come and see them with a real mermaid for example and he would advertise they had this mermaid there. But when people went to see it it turns out it was just a monkey head sewn onto a fish body things like that you know he's a proper it was a proper con man like through and through and he would he would say and do anything to for for shock value and to get money basically he had a midget who worked for him who he would call general tom thumb um and that was modeled after a a tiny man from a story who lived with giants and um, but who was quite big in the day and he would abuse well you know this person became quite famous himself and beloved. He actually became a, a 33 degree Freemason himself, this, this, this member of his circus, you know. Um, but he basically got a girlfriend who was also a midget and P.T. Balm saw an opportunity here and pretended that they had a baby and took photos Boy. of them with a the baby and and sold the story everywhere, you know. But sadly, she couldn't have children. So he was kind of abusing them in a way, you know, it was quite cruel of him to do that, but he did it anyway for a quick buck, you know what I mean? And anyway, this is the guy who then put all his time and effort into making the circus what it is today. And you'll find circuses are just embedded with Freemasonic symbolism. I believe Freemasons built America practically, you know, uh, or at least the, the society of America as it, as it is today. There's question questionable whether or not they built the buildings or not, especially with today's topics in the conspiracy world. But that's neither here nor there. But um, they had a heavy hand in the establishment of American culture and including the circus. They controlled the entertainment of the day as well. And you'll 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 see that you know every single circus of this age was run by Freemasons. All the Ringling brothers, every last one of them was a Freemason of the Baraboo, Wisconsin Lodge, for example. Barnum was a Freemason. Um, you'll find all the circuses of the, of the day; they all had Bros next to the name, so Ringling Bros, um, the Thompson Bros. You know, and you'll find that's not that doesn't mean they were all related brothers necessarily. A brother is a member of the fraternity. They call them brothers. If you're a member of Freemason, then you're a brother, okay? So I think that's what it was really a reference to. Anyway, they all decided to get together and put on one giant show, okay, called King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which would tour all of America, you know, and, and it would be this epic, spectacular spanning over seven rings. You know, it was the biggest show you'll ever see in your entire life modeled after King Solomon. King Solomon is an obsession for Freemasonry. They're always trying to rebuild his temple, you know? Yeah. um. Anyway, every single... Every single member of that show was a Freemason. All the costumes were made by Freemason-affiliated companies who created the costumes for Freemasonic rituals. All the backdrops, everything was run by Freemasons. All the posters were created by Freemasons, artists, everything. It was a Freemasonic production through and through. And I've got the documents for this, but it's basically a recreation of Freemasonic rituals on a grand scale. That's what they used those circuses for in that day. And all the symbolism behind it is there when you actually see it clearly. The ringmaster of a circus, they say is modeled after the horse riding crops of the day because originally the ringmaster was a horse riding master. You know, the original circus is from John Ricketts in the UK, for example. But that's actually not, that's the cover story because he's also dressed identical to the grand worshipful master of a lodge with the top hat. Did you know that the only person allowed to wear a black top hat in a Freemason lodge is the leader <laughs> no one else is allowed wow. to wear a hat in a freemason lodge only the grand worshipful master well that's the ringmaster that's the, the lord of the rings that's king solomon the one who used wow. the ring to control the demons to build the temple you know that's the that's what that it represents that's who the hat man is you know it's um it's the grand worshipful master of the lodge so the ring master the orchestrator of the circus is the grand worshipful master the orchestrator of the rituals in the freemason lodge the clowns represents the spirits they work with and Channel, the demons, the Nephilim, you know, and all symbolically it's there. And obviously a ring in itself is a summoning sigil. And the whole big top tent itself is a psychedelic portal of some kind. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it was well documented that during this time, uh, Freemasons were putting on these epic spectacular shows within um, these circus formats And um, the public were none the wiser to what they were witnessing. The profane masses didn't understand the symbolism behind everything and what was going on. But the brothers, the members of these fraternities who went to see these shows were in awe witnessing their own rituals in these tiny lodges suddenly on a huge scale. You know, it it was for them truly. And we paid for it to go and see it too, you know. And we gave energy to these rituals. And I do believe they're the same invocation rituals done in the lodges to summon the Nephilim. Um, we're just done on a in a public scale, on a in a public way, hidden behind the veil of fun for the family entertainment, you know. <laughs> and we wow. still do it today. It's the same thing we do today. The entertainment industry is rife with uh, demonic symbolism, but it's hidden under occult imagery and symbolism. But it's right there in plain sight once you know what the symbols represent. So, uh, yeah, I mean, circuses are a dying thing today. They're not so great, you know. You'll find shriners who are obviously the next level up from Freemasonry, they still, they still put on circuses in America today. Pretty much all the circuses in America are run by Shriners. Um, the first Shriners circus, I think, was in the uh, 1930s, and they kind of took over the whole shebang and moved on from there. You'll find there's still um, the Ringling Bros in Sarasota, Florida, who put on their thing as well. Uh, but predominantly... It's, it's a Shriner refer today, circuses in America. And the Shriners dress like clowns regularly. They have their own clown sex. Every Shriner, obviously, is a Freemason. Not all Freemasons are Shriners, but every Shriner is a high-level Freemason. And they dress up like clowns, and they go and scare terrifying, dying children in their own uh, hospitals, which they run, which is basically a tax-laundering money scam. <laughs> and it's, it's really dark. And then a level above the Shriners is the Royal Order of the Jesters. And they've been embroiled in all sorts of nasty, horrible stuff, including child sex trafficking and all sorts of things, you know. Um, but it seems like secret societies are obsessed with clowns. And you have to wonder why when you realize, well, the costume of a clown is basically a copy of a demon. And you dress like the thing to channel the thing, as every ancestor spirit culture worship knows. And it's just their way of doing it. In the West, it's an occulted, hidden symbol. We, the profane masses Are not supposed to know That that's what the costume of a clown is really used for We're not supposed to know that Okay It's a secret But it's not a secret anywhere else in the world Wow! Absolutely not
1: Wow. That was, I mean, it's so much to, to take in. And like, when I even, when I first heard it, you talk about this, like at first, like you said, I was like, I don't know, but it was the same with flat earth. When I heard that, I was like, Oh, you're crazy. But once, if you really look at it, open-minded, you know, listen to this, go watch his videos and give it some time and really think about what he's saying. Your eyes will open and your mind will open. Paul, I I really appreciate your time. I, I had a great time. Um, your your presentation's perfect, the way you lay it out, you well spoken, and I, I really enjoyed it. I know my listeners are gonna enjoy it.
0: No. Thanks for that. Thanks for letting me come on and ramble. I, I really appreciate it. I know I can go on a little bit, uh, but I'm I'm really passionate about this. You know, um, this is my this is my baby. This is my life's work, basically. This is my magnum opus, let's call it. Um, but it's it's uh it's just one of those things. It's always been there, it's been hidden in plain sight. And just like a true magician's secret, once you know how the trick's done, you can't really unsee it, you know? And that's basically all we're doing here. It's just an occult symbol that I've I've managed to expose. And um, don't be deceived, you know? And there's so much we didn't touch on today uh, about the modern music industry and how it's still used today to channel demons. And and it, it gets far, far, far deeper than what I've managed to scratch the surface today, you know? And um, anybody who wants to know more, just go to my channel, Understanding Conspiracy check out the playlist uh, the nephilim look like clowns and i <clears throat> you can you you're going to be binging it for a few days but you'll see what i see very clearly with images um once you actually look into it absolutely
1: all right thanks everybody for coming and spending an hour and 20 minutes with us i really appreciate it that this was a great episode I was stoked for this um and I I enjoyed every minute. So thanks Paul, God bless you and your family. I wish you all the success and safety and have a great afternoon, a great night.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks Paul.
1: There is no distance. We cannot be covered over and over. You're not defenseless I'll be your shelter, I'll be your armor I hear you whisper underneath your